so we need practice to, you know, what would it be like if every morning you gave yourself a little high five and then asked yourself what you need. And for a month, you might not know the answer and then the answer might start to come. And that's really powerful. Hey there, I'm Ani Michalski, wellness coach, therapist, and mom to half a dozen amazing kiddos. This podcast is for moms who desperately need a break, but refuse to take one. You know who you are. You have a jam-packed schedule and you're so busy doing everything for everyone else, you don't leave any time for you. What's up with that? Well, no more. Take off your superwoman cape and learn how to put yourself on your to-do list. This is the Moms Without Capes podcast. We have here on the Moms Without Capes podcast, Catherine Endy. Catherine, welcome to the show today. Thank you. It's so great to be here. Catherine is a parenting educator, researcher, coach, and a PhD candidate at the University of Maryland School of Social Work. Her research focuses on parenting stress, mindfulness, self-compassion, and emotion regulation in parents of young children. Catherine's the founder of the Family Life Coach, an online parent coaching business. She helps parents of young children feel more calm, confident, and connected to their children by teaching conscious parenting skills. On today's show, Catherine and I will be talking about the specific struggles that come along with parenting highly sensitive children and how moms can best equip themselves and treat themselves with compassion. So let's dive into it. So Catherine, I shared a bit about about your background. Tell us a bit more about your journey and how you got to be where you are today. Sure. So I am a mom of three kids who are not so young um, now. They are 11, 12, and 16 now. But when they were tiny, I realized that in spite of what I knew professionally as a social worker and someone who had worked with children and families in a variety of capacities through my early career, I I didn't know what was going to happen when I had kids of my own. And I'm sure that that's a familiar (laughs) refrain, right? For those of us who work in the field that we think we know something about raising kids and then we have our own kids and it's a whole different ball game um, when it comes to, you know, just managing those dynamics and, and knowing what to do. Right. And so I found myself really quite, um, confused and frustrated and despairing in terms of how to manage, particularly my oldest, who was what I now know as a highly sensitive child. But at the time, that looked like massive tantrums, unreasonably long tantrums, unreasonably intense tantrums, um, you know, violent outbursts, all of these things that were so shocking to people who knew her and knew us because she was not like that at school. She was not like that at friends' houses. And I really needed some tools and strategies and kind of inner resources for how to manage that because it really challenged me as a mom and as a person to be able to calm myself, to be able to show up for her and support her in a way that needed to happen. And so I took some parenting classes and workshops. I read all the books. I did all the things. Um, I was in a a year-long coaching program for actually several years years in a row. And those are the places where I really gathered the tools that I needed to work on myself. And really, that's kind of what it comes down to. And 
as I was learning all of this, I was also working professionally as a, as a clinical social worker in a school setting, an elementary school setting. And what I realized was like, there's, there's not so much really at the end of the day that you can do with the child. I mean, you can help them kind of survive their childhood and give them tools for surviving their childhood. But when it really comes down to it, the work is with the parents Mm -hmm. and all of the parenting related things that I was learning for myself. I really wanted to share that with the parents that I was working with professionally. And so I shifted my focus a little bit to working more with parents and particularly in that early childhood phase, because that, as you know, is really the critical time, right? That sort of zero to five timeframe is really a critical time for development. So I got a lot of training in conscious discipline and other things related to parenting differently than most of us were parented. And um, after working in that field for a few years, I had always known I wanted to get a PhD. And I was in my mid thirties at that time. And I was like, if this doesn't happen soon, it's probably never going to happen. So all along my journey, I I had um, young children while I was getting my master's degree. And then we moved so that I could start my PhD. And I've been working on that for much longer than anticipated. Um, Thank you, (laughs) pandemic. And um, so here we are, I'm doing research on um, mindfulness and parenting stress and the role that self-compassion and emotion regulation play in that. And that is very much informing the work that I do one-on-one and in groups with parents of young kids. So are you still working with children or have you completely turned your attention and focus with working with parents? So that's a great question. I just work with parents now because I feel that that is really where where it's at in terms of making change. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. Like, um, so I'm a therapist. And so many of the kids that I work with, that is the, the struggle because, you know, you have to involve the family. You can't send a child back to a home where everyone is doing the same things, you know, behave, the same behaviors are happening and expecting the child to change. You really do have to go to the root and to go change that entire system. And definitely parents play a huge role in whether, in our own response to the- Exactly, exactly. Well, and I think that, um, you know, and I think this will really resonate with the work that you do and and the audience that you speak to, that the work is, it really takes a willingness on the part of the parent to really go inside and take a look at what's going on and to really shift our expectations of what we think parenting is supposed to look like. And I mean, when I first learned that you don't have to give your kid a timeout or punish them in order to get them to be quote unquote behave, mm. it blew my mind. It literally right. blew my mind. Like, how, <laughs> how do you get them to do stuff if you don't punish them? Like, I, I really didn't understand that. And, and that has been a crux of my work with parents is like, you can let go of a lot of the things that you thought you knew about parenting and it's going to serve your relationship with your child. And that to me is really the whole point, right? Like they're going to be small and in your care for a very short amount of time. Right. And then they're going to be adults that hopefully you get to be in relationship with. And Mm. I think that the old way of parenting is a lot focused on behavior management and making kids be good and all of this stuff that doesn't really and then we and then we expect our kids to want to hang out with us when they, right. when they get older and it's like what have we done in the early years yeah why would they want to hang out with us what have we done in the early years to sort of foster that relationship right. so 
Right. And like redefining what it means to be a, a good parent. Yes. Like yes. there's expectations that are likely skewed and unrealistic and releasing, like letting go of a lot of those old expectations that we've been holding. Exactly. So let's get back to the, the highly sensitive part. So when, what does that look like? Like, when did you know that your child was highly sensitive? Like, what were some of the characteristics? And can you share a little bit more about that? Yes. And I, I imagine it was very frustrating. It was very, very intense and very hard on myself and my husband and my daughter for that matter. Um, so early on, she was a child who just had really intense tantrums. And when she was two, three years old, sure, everyone, you know, every two and three-year-old has tantrums. But but as she got a little bit older, especially in the sort of six, seven, eight range, and certainly by age 10, when she was still having really intense emotional outbursts. And I mean, essentially still having tantrums. I mean, I knew as someone who studied child development, I knew that was not normal. And I knew that was not typical. And I knew it wasn't okay for any of us because it was really disrupting family life. It was, it was frightening my younger children. It was causing my husband and I to be solely focused on this one child from 5 p.m. to 10 p.m., you know, or from two in the afternoon to, right, our whole, our whole evening would be taken up by trying to manage this poor kid who was, you know, you asked what it looked like. It was tantrums in, in a sense of, like, my daughter would kind of lose control of her emotional regulation, and it was physical. She would hit and kick. She would scream. And because she's highly verbal and she's very smart, even at a very young age, she would talk to us and tell us stuff and engage with us in a way that we thought she was sort of like online cognitively. And so we thought we could sort of reason with her or like, Mm -hmm. you know, engage in conversation or she would say she wanted us to help, but then she would say, go away. But then we would give her space. And then she would say, why aren't you doing anything? I mean, this this (laughs) still happens sometimes, right? But it's like, you can't win, right? And because she could speak and in those moments, it was confusing to us because we thought that the fact that she was talking meant that she was all there kind of cognitively, right? But but what what I learned over time was actually going on is that she was sort of going offline cognitively, like her prefrontal cortex, the part of her brain that can use logic and reasoning and and planning ahead and understanding consequences and using language even was really offline, even though she could use language in those moments. And the way I really knew that that was true was when she got a little bit older, And she would have one of these tantrums. And then afterwards, she wouldn't be able to remember what had happened. And Mm -hmm. that frightened me, actually, and and blew my mind a little bit because it let me know that she really wasn't present at all. And, you know, she would maybe hurt somebody or, you know, she didn't usually break things, but like some, there would be some negative consequence of Mm -hmm. that period when she was in a tantrum that she was completely unaware of until we told her about it after the fact. So in those early years, I thought she had anxiety. I, you know, I didn't really know what was wrong. I was a clinical social worker who worked with kids and I could not figure it out myself, yeah. you know, and there's that whole thing of, you know, you shouldn't diagnose your own kids. And I couldn't, I just, but that's I not even in the DSM. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> exactly. No, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. And when I, I mean, I remember asking her first grade teacher who was a fantastic person and a fantastic teacher. I said, you know, 
I think she has anxiety. And the teacher was like, she can't even think of something to write about when we write about conflict. Like she can't even think of a conflict. Like she definitely is not anxious. She's lovely. She's well-behaved. She's a straight A student, the whole thing. I don't know what you're talking about. Right. And I, you know, and I said, you don't know what my life is like from the time she gets home from school to the time she goes to bed. So something is not right here. Um, and, you know, it is of course good news when a child kind of saves it up for mom and dad, right? It lets, it lets us know that they feel safe with us and much better that she's having those outbursts at home and not at school, all that. But that's, that's exactly what I was thinking of in the very beginning. Like I always rationalize that way. Like, oh, well, I'm glad that it's not the opposite. Like, well, you know, yeah, but then it's more kids to be well-behaved in public. Totally, yes. <laughs> but it's cold comfort to the parent who's actually dealing with it, right? Yes. And, and, and it was very oh, lonely yeah. and isolating. And it wasn't until probably three or four years ago. So she would have been like 11, 12, 13, somewhere in there that I probably like 12 or 13 that I read about highly sensitive, the concept of a highly sensitive person or HSP. And I was like, oh, that's it. That is yeah. you. And also that is me, right. which was the other thing, right? It was like, oh, and part of the reason she triggered me so much is that I saw so much of myself yes. in her, right? Yeah. Which is just the classic, uh, beautiful cosmic lesson of your <laughs> Human psychology, right? There. Exactly, yes. Okay, so you were noticing things once you started learning about like recognizing like this is what is, once you started labeling it, and realizing that this was it, like it was making sense. And it was also making you realize that you as well suffer from high sensitivity. Yeah. And, and being able to call it that, first of all, it, it like unpathologizes it, right? Like we, we, and, and no one wants to pathologize their child. It's, and it's, I think, a tension of whether you want to have a diagnosis for your child or you really don't. Of course, a diagnosis helps them get treatment and services and all the things, but she wasn't needing that, right? Like she right. wasn't needing support in school. She, it was like, we were needing support in order to support her. Right. So it, you know, I don't know that a, a, a clinical diagnosis would have been particularly helpful at that time. And we tried therapies, like we tried so many things and nothing seemed to be working. And once we identified you are a highly sensitive person, she was able to, we were all able to say like, oh, maybe the reason you're feeling a little dysregulated is because everyone's uh, attitude and mood is a little intense right now. And that's mm -hmm. affecting you. Or maybe we all just went out and we were in a crowded place and that's really overstimulating. And so then you need to come home and shut your door and be in your room and like lay in your bed for a little while. You like, knew more what was actually needed. Yeah, we really understood that she was getting like flooded with being overstimulated right. and that that was really causing her to be unable to regulate herself and her emotions. Right. And that makes, and that makes so much sense. Right. And that's not, a, again, it's not a clinical diagnosis. It doesn't mean there's something wrong. It just means right. she processes the world differently than most of her peers or most other children. Right. Turns out being highly sensitive is more common than we might realize. And I don't have the data on that um, at my fingertips, but it also helped me, as I said, to identify it in myself and also to be able to empathize with her more and be able right. to say, you know, 
Yeah, when we've been at the farmer's market on a Saturday morning for an hour and it's really crowded and things are bustling and you know now with the pandemic there's the added stress of people not wanting to be close to each other and things like that, then we're exhausted. Right. Then we need to come home and rest. Right. And it allows us to modify our lifestyle in such a way that we can accommodate that and not judge it and just say, you know what? If we're going to plan a weekend of activities, we need to make sure we plan some rest time in there, or we need to make sure that we don't stack those activities, you know, back to back. Or if we're going to do this kind of activity, we know that we're going to need some downtime afterward. And that's I really imagine nice. that was so comforting, like knowing that you had this solution or you had a plan like this is, you know, knowing that this is what was going on, like now we can problem solve together and we can start cutting things in place yeah, and, That's and, and now, the fact that you both like you recognize it in yourself she, she had a partner now it wasn't exactly like yes and now she is able to do things for herself to kind of protect her space and protect mm -hmm. her energy for example she um, you know now that she's a little bit older she has a phone and she's got earbuds and she's able to just put in her earbuds and listen to a podcast or something even when she's sort of in the common spaces because that allows her to kind of be in this protective bubble that feels like she doesn't, she can kind of tune the rest of us out and just do the things she needs to do. Now, that being said, that presents some challenges in family life because then you've got someone walking around who can't hear right. what you're saying right. and it drives me crazy <laughs> that I'll try to talk to her and she doesn't hear me. And anyway, but that's a whole other thing. But <laughs> in terms of her being able to cope with this and find strategies and, and kind of workarounds for herself, I think being able to kind of plug in and, and tune the rest of us out has been has been a real game changer for her. Are you new to self-care and you're not really sure what you could be doing to fill your bucket? Are you struggling to find time to even do anything for yourself? Then I've got a resource for you. I've compiled a list of over 50 ideas of ways that you can practice self-care, all of which take less than 20 minutes to do, are free or close to it, and can be done in and around your house. If you have time to scroll through social media, which can many times make you feel worse about yourself, then you have time to make yourself feel more energetic, fulfilled, and ready to face what life throws at you. To grab your copy of the self-care ideas list, go to www.momswithoutcapes.com backslash self-care-ideas or click the link in the show notes of today's so, episode. And how about for you? Like the fact that you recognize that you yourself were a highly sensitive person, like what strategies, because I'm sure there are some listeners that are listening to this today that may be recognizing or maybe like getting that idea, like maybe some of the things you mentioned are resonating. What are some specific strategies that you yourself have employed in order to to manage the greater world and to manage yourself, to regulate your emotions and get yourself to a place you want to be. Yeah. I think that, um, gosh, there's so many things and it's like little things here and there. Right. So some, some tools of it you have in is, your toolbox. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and like things I've kind of collected along the way. Um, certainly some of the stuff I just described in terms of managing our schedule, managing our energy. I mean, I really love that idea of like, rather than managing your time, managing your energy. So for me, I am just much more 
intentional about when I schedule things, what kinds of things I schedule, what times. I don't start my workday until about 10 a.m. I have that luxury. Um, and that's not because I like am, you know, a diva who needs to sleep all morning, but but that I really need, like I really need the sleep. And I also really need the self-care time in the morning so that I can show up fully for my clients and for my children and for my family. Um, also, I would say, you know, really setting boundaries in terms of saying no to invitations to do things. If I, like, if I'm not feeling it, we, we just say no. Um, and again, that, that has shifted in the last couple of years. Um, when you said like managing your energy, that's like protecting your energy by being able to say no and uphold those boundaries. Exactly. Exactly. And, um, and, and also learning when I need to remove myself from a situation. So I also suffer from misophonia, which is a sensitivity to noise, specifically chewing sounds, crunching sounds. Oh, I think my daughter has that. It's, I never knew that was a name. <laughs> it's for real. You should definitely look it up. I don't, I've yet to come across any kind of treatment that really is very effective um there are times what she does is she just tells us we need to stop (laughs) well and the thing about it is yeah no the thing about it is that the experience of it is and this has gotten much worse for me in the last couple years I don't know why I don't know if it's aging or what but um the experience of it is for example crunching you know chips or something it just fills me with murderous rage like I actually and it'll be my children and I'm like Oh my gosh, like, please stop that. <laughs> now I know, and I just have to really like work on, you know, deep breathing and whatever to kind of calm myself down because I know like it's, it's my 12 year old daughter who's having a snack after school. Right. Mm-hmm. Or the, the very most hilarious is when I bring them a snack in the car and then they're mm-hmm. crunching in the car and I'm like, Oh my <laughs> God, I'm trying to draw. And I'm like, this I did this to myself. You right? did it. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so misophonia is a real thing. Um, I don't know if if it is correlated with high sensitivity. It, it's kind of its own thing. I think you can yeah. have misophonia and not be a highly sensitive person, but it is a form of sensitivity for me. Um, and so there are times when I just need to leave the room, you know, okay. I, and it's not fair to my family to say, go eat that in another room or go, I sometimes do that, but it's not That's fair. My to say, does to yeah, go, go in another room or stop making that noise or, or, right. or whatever. Um, it's really on me to protect myself take and take care of myself. Yeah. Just excuse myself. Right. Okay. So what advice, um, what advice do you have for other parents? Like if, if they are, res- if this is resonating with them and whether they themselves are feeling like they may be highly sensitive or if they have a child that they are, are thinking might be highly sensitive, what kind of advice would you have to offer? Yeah, a number of things. First of all, I think that in terms of parenting a child who's highly sensitive, I think that we need to accept what we see in front of us, right? Like we need to know what it is and accept that my child is this way and that's okay. And it is what it is. Like, this is what we're dealing with here. So, so much, I see this so much with my clients that there's so much suffering in the resistance, right? So if, if your child is having a massive tantrum and you're like, oh my gosh, I need to put these other kids to bed. I don't like that this is happening. I want them to quiet down, right? Like that's where the suffering happens, right? But if, if you can just take a deep breath and just describe what's going on, 
your arms are going like this and you're, you're making a very loud noise, you know, just describing what's going on. It helps and it engages the part of your brain that can regulate yourself. Right. And so being able to just describe and kind of have use that conscious awareness. And that's part of conscious parenting is using the conscious awareness of what your experience is and what's going on right in front of you. Um, Another thing I would suggest is to lower your expectations. And I don't mean that in a way like, oh, your highly sensitive kid just gets away with everything. Like certainly you want it to be fair and, and, and equitable in your home. But, but I mean, lowering your expectations of like, maybe if you're on vacation with your family, you can't spend the entire, like a 10 hour day going from, you know, sightseeing thing to, you know, to different activities that you, right. you need to shift your expectations. So like, we're going to need to go back to the hotel and rest, or, you know, we're going to need to plan our weekend in a different way so that we can take care of this person who needs something different. Right. right. And that's what you would do with a child. If you had a child with a disability, right. You would, you would make accommodations. And I, you know, I sometimes say to this to my clients who do have highly sensitive children, of course, again, we don't want to pathologize, but I think for some families, it helps to think of it in that way. Like if your child were in a wheelchair, you would have different expectations of what they can and cannot do. And you would make accommodations. Right. You need to, you need to parent each unique child, the child you have. Exactly. I would also say that for both the, the highly sensitive parent and the parent of a highly sensitive child or that combination as with myself and my daughter, really tuning into yourself and checking in, like, how am I doing right now? What do I need? Slowing down, right? And like really engaging some conscious awareness of your own inner experience so that you, I mean, that's the first step to regulating your emotions, right? right? Which is the other thing I was going to suggest is learning to regulate your emotions literally is the definition of not losing your shit on your kid right. when they're having a hard time, right? <laughs> Which we tend to do because we're like, why are you acting this way, right? Yeah, and that's that frustration. And they're highly sensitive. Mm. It's even more likely that, that you're going to lose your cool from time to time. So I think that that is really important in terms of, you know, also building and like building a trusting relationship with your highly sensitive child, because the really important thing is that they know that you have their back and that when they're losing it, they're not doing it on purpose to piss you off. They're not doing it to hurt you. If they could do better, they would do better. Right. Stop taking it personal. (laughs) Yeah. Stop taking it personally. They're, they're having a hard time. And so your job is to show up and support them. So again, it all comes back to the emotion regulation, the conscious awareness and, and the self-compassion piece, right? right? We talked about that at the beginning that, you know, really being able to offer yourself the care and kindness and compassion that you would offer to any friend or loved one who was struggling. So in that moment, when you're like, oh my gosh, I don't know if I can handle this kid to just even like literally put your hand on your heart and take a deep breath and you've got this mama or yeah, remind yourself of that. Yeah. To remind yourself or even just say, yeah, this is really hard. Mm-hmm. It's really hard. You're having a hard time right now and it's okay. Right. And, and it sounds simple and kind of frivolous, but there's, you know, tons of research and it's part of my own doctoral research on self-compassion and parenting that, that this really helps to lower parenting stress and really helps us feel better. And that helps us to be able to show up better for our kids. 
Right. And you, when you were sharing about what tools were in your toolbox and what strategies, um, what was running through all of your examples or all of your ideas were um, just identifying what you needed, like becoming aware of what it is that you needed in that moment. And then telling your, like acknowledging that and then finding the way to give yourself what you need, which is a huge part of that self-compassion. And because we do tend to be so self-critical of ourselves and we, we start, you know, as I imagine you may have done too, when you start getting that frustrated, like questioning your own parenting skills. And even though you can't, Absolutely. like you had studied this and you had been working with kids and everything, when it's your own situation and you're so close, like you're in it, we have a really hard time of looking at the positive and seeing like, well, what are you doing well and focusing on that. And so it, it does take definitely practice to be compassionate towards yourself, because especially if you're in a place where you are questioning your parenting ability or questioning, you know, everything, everything, when you're feeling that frustrated and that at a loss, I think it's a natural Absolutely. thing. And, and I think that, I mean, you raise a good point that when things don't seem to be going, like when your child is having a really hard time and none of the strategies that you've learned or that you think you know about parenting are working, it's very easy to just like throw your hands yeah. up. It yeah. isn't working, right? And I work with yeah. a lot of parents of highly sensitive kids who, for whom the things that I would teach parents of not highly sensitive kids, those kinds of approaches don't mm -hmm. necessarily work, right? And so we have to shift and kind of adjust those things. For example, when a child who's not highly sensitive is having a tantrum, I recommend getting down on the floor, getting close to them, like maybe touching them, right? But a highly sensitive kid is like, get away from me. Do not touch me, right? But then they exactly. still need your support. So how do you do that in a way that respects their boundaries, but also makes them feel safe? And, it, you know, when a kid says go away, it's very tempting to just leave the room, right? But they still need us, especially really little kids. Like they still need us. So finding ways to be able to continue to support them, even though it looks a little bit different than a child who's not highly sensitive. And, and to your point about, um, you know, thinking about what you need and asking yourself what you need. I, I have a client that I gave an exercise to that is really working beautifully and I love it. You know, looking herself in the mirror, we do a little high five in the mirror mm -hmm. and then, and then asking like, what does this woman need? Like looking yourself in the yeah. mirror, yourself, what does this woman need? And then listening for the answer, right? And that takes practice because- And it's that trust. Like not just trusting your child and like and building that trusting relationship, but learning how to trust yourself. Yes, exactly. And I think that we're, as, as women and as moms, we tend to be out of practice with, so we need to practice to, you know, what would it be like if every morning you gave yourself a little high five and then asked yourself what you need. And for a month, you might not know the answer and then the answer might start to come. Sure. And that's really powerful. Yeah, absolutely. So you have shared so much great stuff here today. What is your favorite way to practice self-care? You mentioned quite a few little nuggets throughout, but what's your, what's your go-to way to practice self-care and, and to regain that energy and fill your cup? Yeah. So I have a morning routine that I do most mornings, which includes a little bit of journaling, um, a little bit of gratitude journaling in that practice. Um, I have a gratitude practice with a friend where we send each other a message every day, where we just say what we're grateful for. So that's really, 
you know, uplifting and, and centering. Um, and then after I do my journaling, I do a breathing exercise that I, it's a yoga, yoga breathing exercise that I do. And then followed by some meditation. Um, sometimes I work in a little bit of yoga, but lately it's just been the, the breathing and meditation piece. Um, that's been really, I think those are really my go-to. And I guess that's all before 10 o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, that was before 10. Yeah. And I mean, not starting my work day till 10 a.m. is also part right. of the self-care, right? right? And just taking it slow. That's something I actually have been starting to do. I went through my journal, like my planner, I mean, and I'm like 10 o'clock. Like that's it. The only day that I don't do it is on Thursday because I do a Facebook live early in the morning. But other than that, I'm like 10 o'clock. I need yeah. to give myself that space. <laughs> well, and then you just work so much more efficiently you know. effectively, yeah. right? when you've had, when you've met all of your needs. Mm-hmm then you can show up for other people. Right. It definitely adds to like your productivity and giving you that focus and, and centering yourself for sure. So we talk a lot about, you know, self-development and self-growth. And so what book, um, I'm a huge reader, so I'm always like adding to the list. What is a book that you would say has profoundly changed your life or greatly influenced it? Yeah. So, I mean, this is a parenting book. Um, it's called Parenting for a Peaceful World by Robin Grill. And this, I mean, it's kind of an intense read, I'll be honest, but it really, for me, solidified what I refer to as the new paradigm of parenting, which is to say it kind of goes through the first section is really about kind of the history of childhood and and different modes of parenting, different ways in which we've interacted with children over the you know, decades and, and, and really millennia, like it really goes deep back into history and then, and then really outlines for the reader, this new paradigm that we're shifting into that is about connection and about trust and about treating children as human beings, not as, you know, many versions of ourselves or many adults, right. But that they are their own growing and developing people who came here on earth for a reason and that our job is to be in relationship with them and to support them. So that is a book that I return to over and over again um, for, for, you know, for my work professionally, but also for my own parenting practice. Okay. Well, thanks for sharing that with us. Where can listeners find you? So my business is called The Family Life Coach and my website is katherinendy.com. Okay. And also, I mean, I'm on the Instagram and, and, and on the Facebook, um, <laughs> everything is at the family life coach, except the website. Okay. I will put all of the social links, including your website in the show notes. So if you're interested in finding Catherine online, go ahead and check out the show notes for all of her information. Um, anything else that, that you'd like yes. Yeah, I have, um, I have a gift for your listeners, which is a self-compassion meditation. So that will also, I guess, be available in the show notes. And if you visit my website, there are a couple of free resources on there. There's an alternatives to punishment cheat sheet that you can download that gives you some ideas for, you know, what do I do? Okay, if, I, if I'm not going to punish my kid, what do I do? Um, and there's also a free mini course on how to manage difficult toddler and preschooler behaviors without resorting to bribery and punishment. So that's available on my website as well. Okay, awesome. I will be sure to include all that in the show notes. So thank you so much for coming on the show today, Catherine. It was such a pleasure meeting you and talking with you. You too.
The mission of Moms Without Capes is to empower super moms, moms who don't make time for themselves because they are so busy taking care of everyone and everything else. My goal is to help you get comfortable with hanging up your cape. You might be holding on tight to your cape, tying your worth to your to-do list, packing your schedule and running the kids all over town, sacrificing or postponing your own passions, neglecting your health, and at the end of the day, falling into bed exhausted and already worrying about what needs to get done tomorrow. Sound familiar? This was me for about a decade. The guilt, the shame, the resentment, the overwhelm, the exhaustion. I struggled to put myself on my to-do list, and when I did, I was last on the list, and rarely did I feel up to doing anything that would make me feel good. So my health, my mood, and my family suffered because of it. I started with the doing part, because I am an action taker, and so I began implementing small acts of self-care into my days. Being intentional about doing one small thing each day that was just for me. Then I began doing the internal work, the mindset shifts, the self-discovery, and the self-building that helped me truly love myself. Before then, I struggled with low self-esteem, lacked confidence, and was constantly criticizing myself. I had limited boundaries, which led me to saying yes, even when I meant no. I learned how to identify what I wanted and needed and then got good at communicating what I needed and wanted. I started dealing with the perfectionism that ruled my life and I started practicing self-compassion. Maybe you are struggling with many of these same issues and you recognize yourself in what I just shared. If so, I invite you to sign up for a discovery call with me. I get it. I can help you let go of that super mom cape and not only find the woman hiding underneath, but fall in love with her. You do not have to do this alone. I want to help you. In the show notes of today's episode, you will find the link to my calendar. Let's talk about what's going on for you and see if working together would make sense on your journey to discovering and loving yourself. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Moms Without Caves podcast. I'm always up to hearing your ideas for future episodes, so send me a DM and let me know. And if you enjoyed today's episode, it would be awesome if you'd leave me a positive review wherever you're listening to podcasts these days. Until next time, take care of you. You are worth it.